Let's face it, having a lawn is awesome. Maintaining it, not so much. It gets tiresome and expensive, and you should be enjoying it as opposed to constantly mowing it. That's where Sin Lawn comes in. Sin Lawn is environmentally friendly. There's no watering, no use of pesticide products, no mowing, it's very low maintenance, and you save money. Sin Lawn uses bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA in the state of Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass. And they have USDA bio-based certification. It's the safest and cleanest turf available. Great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or paws. Professional and cl- certified distributors and installers nationwide. You get a premium quality product, which is highly durable and UV stabilized. You get your free time back. You can enjoy your yard instead of working to maintain it. And you can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It's green all year. It's really great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf. You want a golf hole in your backyard and, and many more projects. So please visit sinlawn.com slash beyond that's s-y-n-l-a-w-n.com slash beyond get along you can be proud of all the time with pride of your neighborhood don't be that one guy in your neighborhood with the brown lawn who the neighbors gossip about over tea or even better up your short game in a major way your golf buddies and your neighbors will thank you sinlawn Alright, BTP listeners, I don't know about you guys, I could live without fish more easily than I could live without caffeine. I'm not proud of it. There's a literal film over my brain until I swig that first cup in the morning, usually followed by four of the cups throughout the day. It's not a cheap hobby. Until recently, I was a Grady skeptic, but now I am a full-blown believer in the power of Grady's cold brew. Order online and get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. We'll save you a ton of money, also a ton of time. You won't have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from your fridge. Already cold and completely customizable for your perfect cup. There's going to be a literal bag of New Orleans-style cold brew in your fridge that comes from a spigot. The only thing that's missing is the second-line brass band and powdery beignets. Given that things are getting a bit colder here on the East Coast, there's also the option to brew it hot. Brady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. Type in BTP20 and you get 20% off. I love this stuff. In fact, I think I'm going to go have some Grady's Cold Brew right now.
Hey folks, I am David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You're tuned in to episode 111, 111 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast that was generally speaking... Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands, because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. But the problem with Fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic, only pay attention to their favorite band to the exclusion of all other musical acts out there. And frankly, it's time someone did something about that. We've been doing something about it for the past three and a half years. We really have, and I really enjoyed it. I uh, I don't know, you know, if we've accomplished our goal or if our goal is still being accomplished. I know I've uh, greatly enjoyed week after week after week after month after year trying to overcome that sense of fish myopia with you, Dave. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about a jam here in this episode that we've had circled for some time now. We've been discussing, um, covering here for probably the entirety of Beyond the Pond. It's a joyous jam. It's a celebratory hose jam. And we're going to use this jam to spin off into some of our favorite albums of all time. And that jam is the Bathtub Gin from Limestone, Maine on August 17th, 1997. Otherwise known as the Went Gin. You know it. You love it. We love it. It's a bit of a layup, but God, we just wanted to talk about it. As such, some of the themes are in this episode include Unbridled Joy, the Perfect Melody, and the version by which all future gins will be based on. On that note... Go take a dip in the bathtub with the fish. Went Gin. Why are we covering the Went Gin? Why, after 111 episodes plus a bunch of bonus episodes plus who knows what, are we covering the Went Gin? Well, I'll tell you, dear listeners, as you most likely heard yesterday, uh, the Undermine podcast announcement. Um, David and I, after nearly four years in the game, are going to be retiring the Beyond the Pond title and joining up with our dear friends, RJB, Matt Dwyer, John Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and the one and only Tom Marshall to create the Ultimate Fish podcast covering fish from a multitude of angles, interviews both within and without the band, great deep dives into huge tours and huge moments in the band's history, and Dave and I will be adding a ton of information about what was happening in music at the time within 
the different eras of fish history that we'll be covering. That will be coming out here in early 2021. So these next three episodes as we wind down 2020 here will be the final three Beyond the Pond episodes to date. And we wanted to cover in what will most likely be our final traditional BTP episode where in which we take a jam and spin that off into a number of musical recommendations for you. We wanted to cover one of the greats and we were tossing around a number of ideas, jams that we haven't covered to this point in time. And we kind of just settled on the fact that simply put, the Went Jin is one of the greatest examples of full band connection and whose fish has ever performed. It sounds rehearsed, pre-written, there's nary a misnote, and the phrasing is so exceptional throughout that we just figured we had to cover it here in this here episode 111. Um, it's a jam that shares almost nothing with the thematic funk and groove of 1997. It sounds to me like pure fish in the same way the December 31st, 1993 Harry Hood July 8th, 1994, Stash, December 1st, 1995, Mike Song, and the December 31st, 1995, Drowned does to me. While the band excels at exploring the depths of so many different styles of music, the Went Gin, along with the above examples, sound like fish music to me, if you credited that to a particular style. And beyond the seeming perfection of the sound, it's the emotive joyfulness that absolutely gets me. Every time I hear it, I break out in a massive smile and feel like I'm on the verge of tears. Just one of those moments with fish where everything just aligns just right. They're able to channel their musical ideas and emotional connections through focused and intentful music. Yeah, it's not the longest bathtub gin, even the most inventive version. It never even leaves the original bathtub uh, gin key of C major. But, and you know, if I had to listen to only a single gin for the rest of my life, this probably wouldn't even be it. But the buildup and the sheer amount of pure flowing hose in the final five minutes or so is unparalleled in fish history. We talk about the hose, less of a fire hose, more of a tidal wave. I mean, in terms of sheer exaltation within BAFTA gin. Probably the closest you get to this is maybe um, June 28, 2000 from Holmdale, New Jersey, which, while amazing, almost kind of feels to me more like a raging ghost jam, whereas the Went Gin makes you feel like uh, Jack and Rose leaning over the bow of the <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> it does. It really Little does. <laughs> Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio... Got uh, like Celine Dion blaring in the background. It's a good no. 1997 reference as well. I appreciate that you tied that together. Um, I think Titanic was 98, wasn't it? Was it 97? I believe. Yeah, I believe it was. Late oh, it was 97. Yes, it was 97. Okay. Won the Oscars in 98. Yes. Right. Um, which is also the first time we've ever mentioned the movie Titanic on this podcast. So, you know, we're still covering new ground, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. As Dave mentioned, and as I would agree with, there's there's definitely um, like more inventive versions of Bathtub Gin, and um, I'd encourage you, if you want to hear about some of those versions, go back to episode 103, where we covered the Lexington Gin from November 7th, 1996, um, and we recommend some comparable versions of Bathtub Gin that go kind of in a similar direction uh, to that gin, where it just like explores an insane amount of terrain. Um, that said, we wanted to talk about one thing that this bathtub gin from August 17th 
really does foreshadow which are the blissful jams that would come in the fall tour. While the fall 1997 tour, perhaps the most celebrated tour in fish history, is typically known for cow funk, in my humble opinion, the best parts of that tour come from the bliss jamming to which this jam clearly inspired. A couple versions that we would recommend for you that steer pretty clear of the funk and reside in more of like that heavenly ethereal bliss sounding jams that we would hear more frequently in 1998 and 1999 are the November 13th, 1997 Stash, the November 16th, 1997 Timber, November 22nd, 1997 Haley's Comet. Dave, what else do we got? Got uh, December 2nd, 1997 Simple, from, uh, Philadelphia. Next night, also Philly, December 3rd, 1997, Bowie. That's an incredible version of David Bowie. Get your Take Me Out to the Ball Game, tease his traditional Bowie, and then just blast off into a blissful space. And then uh, the Tweezabella, December 6th, 1997, from was it Auburn Hills, Michigan? The Palace at Auburn Hills, absolutely. The Palace at Auburn Hills. The Malice at the Palace. <laughs> this is Ron Artest, not throwing you up into the stands tweezer much more uh mellow version of tweezer it's a grace Tester. it's a graceful version graceful didn't you like change his name to like something meta world peace may yeah all right it's just like the meta world peace tweezer they, there you go i like it. i like the connection there so um taking a step back from this version of bathtub gin and talking about the significance of this show so this comes from the final night of the summer 1997 tour and of the Great Wet Festival. While the best tour of the year would still come with the November and December run, this is the final show of a blistering six months of music that saw the band completely reinvent themselves and chart a new path forward. In the larger fish context, the Great Went is a deeply, deeply celebrated event. It brought the band to Limestone for the first time. It was immortalized in Bittersweet Motel, and it features some of the best festival jams we've heard from the band throughout their career. It also, somehow, has the least celebrated late night set of any fish festival with the disco set. I think I've only listened to it once, and I didn't really feel any need to go back to it. Yeah, it's probably more than I listened to it. <laughs> I listened to half of it once and said, all right, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I love the ambient set. I love the tower jam. I love uh, the storage jam. I love the drive-in set. I, the flatbed jam is fantastic. I felt like the disco set uh, was something of a weirdly missed opportunity, but neither here nor there. It's a, it's a nearly perfect festival outside of that. Um, festival starts on August 16th, and set one is famous for Trey getting pissed at the band midway through and afterwards, as is documented in Bittersweet Motel, claiming that the band played a bad set. To our ears, we can't exactly figure out what he's so upset about. The chalk dust is a touch sloppy, but the punch in the eye showcases the space that the band will play with in all their songs throughout the fall, and the ghost jam rips, and the You Enjoy Myself is high quality. I think in memory, sir, is part of the frustration stemmed from the fact they didn't have time to do proper sound check. Right. So, I mean, the set kind of ended up being the sound check. I mean, yeah, the chalk dust does kind of fall to pieces. The theme from the bottom is a little bit disjointed. But, I mean, Trey bitching about the set is kind of just him being a nitpicky perfectionist in 1997. It's a great set. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point. Like, 
And it, it was always one of those insights I loved from Bittersweet Motel, and it's something I wish we could see or hear more from the band, is, like, them walking off stage to a set that, like, if I just press play on, sounds great to my ears, but, like, the band has issues with. And I think, uh, you know, you and I have been not shy whenever we think that a set loses flow or contains three or four songs that we don't necessarily think are needed there. You know, when you tack on your, like, Julius... Susie Golgi and to a second set that just kind of tends to fall apart from a standpoint. And I always think back to this moment where fish plays a huge ghost, a massive, you enjoy myself, my personal favorite squirming coil ever. And yet Trey walks off the stage and says that was a bad set as like justification for any fish fan being nitpicky about fish. Like if, if Trey's going to be that nitpicky about a set like this, I think it's okay if we all kind of have like minor arguments and disagreements about like what right. we thought worked in a set versus what did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Clearly they care. So we care. Exactly. They know that not every night is going to be stellar because they're human. When they walk the tightrope like that, they're going to fuck up. So yeah, that's why um it, it's the eternal it's the eternal argument that we've always had and like the agreement that we've had of like I know you love the New York Mets more than anyone I know. You know I love the Chicago Cubs more than anyone you know. But like if you looked at our twi- at our at our um text chains that would go back and forth like during baseball season, you'd think that like we spent five nights a week torturing ourselves. <laughs> but like at the end of the day, like I wouldn't have it any other way. You know what I mean? I mean, Mets fans do spend five nights a week torturing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that was before they got a new owner worth $14.6 billion, so I might not be able to cry anymore. Right, right. <laughs> People might, might, might be tortured over you. Um, right. So as I said... Uncle this Steve Air, baby! <laughs> as I said, this is my personal favorite squirming coil that closes out the set, partially because it's the first I ever heard on the Bittersweep DVD. Partially, like, the lighting, the way that they catch Paige playing keys with, like, the crowd and, like, the lighting there and, like, just prior to dusk, uh, it's just so magical. It's just, like, everything looks so perfect at that moment. And Paige stands up at the end of performing uh, his his uh, piano solo, just kind of gazes out at the crowd. The crowd kind of silences a little bit, and he just goes, stick around. And I just get chills every time. It's just, I, I wish that they would close the set like that again. Um, moving into the second set, August 16th, set two. This to me feels like the moment that the band settled in and played like they had no place to go for two days. Wolfman's in a simple, an odd couple, an odd couple jam into my soul. And then a weird jam that goes into slaves in the traffic light. It's just a incredible segment of 1997 deep, deep funk. Yeah, August uh, 16th, third set. That was the big Haley's into cities into Llama. Big, big, great segment. Uh, at this point, it was very dark outside, I recall. Kind of solidified the fact that they were feeling on, they are feeling the vibes of limestone. Whatever hesitancy Trey felt in the first set is gone. I mean, it's really deep, solid third set. Was that also the set? Was that, um, there's big limb by limb in that set. It's good limb by limb in that set. Yeah, it's really Yeah, nice. there's like a big 17-minute limb by limb. It doesn't... I think it stays in the same key. doesn't modulate, but the really... It's tight. It's exciting. It was a really good version of the song. So then we move to the next day, August 17th. This is a little bit less adventurous, but to many, the more special show, even if its highlights are greater in pockets. I remember when I was first getting into Fish, and I had a copy of the Fish book, 
Um, there's just a lot of like writing about August 17th. I remember like fantasy tour people on fantasy tour, like really regarded that show in particular as like one of those really special shows. Um, we'll get into that here in a second, but, um, I, I don't tend to return to that show in full at this point in time. I, I return more in highlights and I think the second set is near perfect. Um, set one, you've got a fantastic version of May's really fluid tweezer to taste. Set two is probably a perfect set. One of those sets. Down with Disease, yep. Bathtub Gin, Uncle Pen, 2001, The Art Jam, and Harry Hood. And uh, just a quick note about it. Midway through the 2001, each band member sneaks off to finalize their piece of art, which will then be transported to the fan's art tower during Harry Hood by way of like being literally passed over the entire crowd and then burned at the end of the festival. During this, Trey gives an impassioned speech about the essential connection between the band and the audience. There's further bonding of the community that takes everyone into Fall Tour on a high note. It's a very, very special set. Um, and it's followed by set three, which I don't have anything to say about set three aside from the fact that it closed the festival. Yeah. So the Great Went was my first, and to this day only, big fish festival attendance. I had tickets to Curveball. Oh, well. It was uh, the summer before my freshman year of college. I just came off a somewhat depressing gig as a day camp counselor at the local Jewish community center. Me and my co-counselor didn't get along. I had uh, fourth grade boys, I think about 10 years old. And at that age, you're still young enough to be pretty helpless, but old enough to kick your counselor in the balls repeatedly, which is what <laughs> happened. So for some reason, on the drive up to the Great Went... Um, my buddy Jason, who was driving, he insisted on listening to Jimmy Buffett box set nonstop, not Fisher Dead Tapes. I don't even think it was the complete box set, because I remember hearing the song called Money Back Guarantee like 17 times. It kind of drove us all crazy. And once we were there, we kind of, we did a lot of stuff that 17-year-old hippies would be expected to do. Like, I think we peed into a water bottle and tossed it around during separate, like a football, you know, just like gross... Gross stuff. As long as I live, I'll never forget being 15 feet from the stage on uh, August 17th, set two. I've never smiled as hard as I had during that gin. I've never had less control of my limbs than I've had during that gin. I've never felt more connected to fish or the audience than during that bathtub gin. That's just the way it was. And at the time, I hated the third set. Ah. Oh, it just felt tossed off and weak when, in fact, Fish had realized eventually what I did, which was that the second set was impossible to follow up. So there really wasn't even, there was nothing they could have done except kind of play a silly come down set of Buffalo Bill, Way, Son of a Mule. And that's exactly what they did. And then when they used kind of with the giant match to burn down the big wooden structure, at first I thought, did I unwittingly join a cult? This is kind of weird and cult-like, but in retrospect, it was neat. But yeah, certainly uh, that second set is as perfect as it gets. And the third set wasn't good, but it just didn't have to be good. Right. I think it's a lesson in, um, you know, sometimes you get these shows that everything kind of comes together across an entire night, but uh, something may be sacrificed within that. And sometimes you mm. get these sets where everything comes together in that set and something might be sacrificed in set one 
versus set three if it's a three set show. And I think this is one of those where like they put everything that they had and everything connected in that hour long set of music. And that's all I had to do. Um, So stepping back really quick, we wanted to give some context and some perspective here in terms of the road to the Great Went. Um, So as I noted uh, earlier on, this was the final show of six months of creative reinvention that would essentially change the direction of where Fish was going in their career and really chart the path forward not only through 2000 and the first hiatus, but I would argue through 2004 and the uh, closing of Fish at Coventry in August 2004. Um, It's really a seven-year period where the band experimented with a larger singular style of music and tried to figure out a number of different routes within that. And ultimately, that style, along with success and some other stuff that came in, to the uh, fish world would ultimately lead to the band needing to take a significant break in 2004. So um, if you think back August 17th, 1987, go back, like listen to this set and then go back and listen to December 31st, 1996. And it's literally two different bands. And what's even Mm. more crazy is six weeks went by just six weeks before they opened up a European winter and then summer tour in mid February, 1997 Uh, from the, February 2nd show in Amsterdam onward, they were a totally new band, experimenting with rhythm and funk, macabre, avant-garde, noise, and freeform. The band let themselves let themselves go further than they had even two years prior in fall 1994 and summer 1995, pushing themselves towards a unified goal of playing without a leader and operating as a singular organism. Summer in Europe brought debuts as the winter tour inspired the band to put their newfound style into songs and a return to Amsterdam showcased the band's ability to craft complete shows within their new style. When they returned to the U S in mid July, they were brimming with confidence and stoked to blow their core fan bases, collective minds. What are some of the shows that really captured this vibe, Dave? Definitely uh, July 22nd, 1997 from Riley, North Carolina, um, July 31st, 1997, Shoreline. Of course, August 2nd, 1997, from The Gorge. August 9th, 1997, from Alpine Valley. Um, I think the next one we recently talked about on this show. August 10th, 1997, from Deer Creek. Of course, being the second set, gigantic cities and lots of freeform rotation jamming. And the last Rock of William ever. And we're okay with that. And uh, August 14, 1997, from the Darien Lake. That was, of course, the one with um, Colonel Forbins. They were supposed to go into Mockingbird, but they could not because the funk was too deep. It's the one to Camel Walk instead. And these were all shows had the best aspects of the band's play in this period. A raw and aggressive style of funk. Kind of showed the signs of the band learned to be comfortable with it. And by the fall... The funk would be glossier and prettier, but kind of in the summer it had a bit of a raunchy edge to it. Yeah, I tend to think of a lot of these jams as like being really angular, whereas like when you get to like the Hampton Haley's, uh, the Palace Tweezer, like there's a little bit of more refined edge to it that like would lead us into the Island Tour jams, into the Summer 98 jams that were much more ambient driven. These are just like true raw experiments in crazy funk. 
Um, and so a couple of the big jams that we wanted to highlight for all of you leading the way up to the Great Went Bathtub Gym are the July 22nd, Down with Disease into Mike song. July 23rd, Ghost. We covered this uh, spring of 2019, I want to say. Here on Beyond the Pond, we talked about the Atlanta Ghost. It is a hot one. The July mm. 25th, Bathtub Gin and Amaka Super Policeman into ACDC Bag. One of the most underrated segments of music in fish history. I cannot recommend enough you going and listening to that. The July 29th, Gumbo from Phoenix, a jam referenced in the fish book by Trey and saying that that along with the Denver Ghost from November were the two closest jams to what the band was going for at this period in time. The July 30th, 1987, Bowie City's Bowie from Ventura, California. Finish us off, Dave. What are the other big jams of summer 97? We have July 31st, 1997 from Shoreline. Huge runaway gym. Big Jim. Just like your dad, Brian. Big Jim Brinkman. (laughs) August 2nd, 1997, from the Gorge, large down with disease in the tweezer. Uh, like we said, August 10th, 1997, mind blowing cities. And as we'd mentioned, August 16th, Wolfman's brother into Simple. And August 17th, really that entire second set with the down with disease and the bathtub gin. All gigantic. And now, on that note, let's play uh, an extremely hairy, hosey version of uh, the bathtub gin from August 17, 1997 from Limestone, Maine.
right, BTP listeners, we have an awesome contest to announce. Our sponsor, Sinlon, is offering listeners an exclusive prize, portable 5x7 roll of the best quality turf around. It's about the size of an area rug, but you can easily cut down any size. Sinlon is made in the USA with bio-based ingredients. It's environmentally friendly and highly durable. You can make great use of this roll, even if you're a city or apartment dweller. You've come up with a whole bunch of fun ideas, and some of those are... Bring the outside indoors. Have an area for your kids to play. A spot for you to get the feel of laying in the grass as the weather turns colder and you're spending less time outside. Works as a grassy yoga practice or workout inside. Use it as a meditation spot. Place it below your sofa to rest your feet in the grass while you couch tour or binge watch Shit's Creek like I've been doing lately. You can easily pack it up and bring it camping for a nice grassy space to hang out at your campsite. Easy spot to take your dog out in a balcony or patio if the weather is bad. You just want to make sure you can throw in the rinse every so often. You can even cut it in the smaller patches and gift it to all your friends who could use a nice grassy spot to rest their feet indoors and reconnect the summer. It's also a cool idea for the holidays. I can say from experience, it feels very real and super soft and comfortable on bare feet. Sinlon will be giving away three of these 5x7 pre-cut rolls to our listeners. Visit sinlon.com slash beyond to enter and explore their site to buy it for yourself or as a gift. Sinlon can also customize and put it to your space, your home lawn, a commercial space like a playground, or even a classroom if you're a teacher and your classes are starting to meet again. I happen to love hitting golf balls off of them. Again, visit sinlon.com slash beyond to enter to win deadline to enter is December 9th. That is S-Y-N-L-A-W-N dot com slash beyond. B-E-Y-O-N-D. It was another 18-inning loss and a meaningless season for the Cubs. I am reeling today. Mmm. Sounds like you needed some get a little pep in your step, son. A little, little extra pick-me-up. I do. This is where Grady's cold brew comes in. Order online, get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a dollar a cup. So wait, what you're saying is that Grady's is going to end up saving me a ton of money and also time. I'm not going to have to socially distance in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from my fridge, already cold and completely customizable for my perfect cup. There's a literal bag of cold brew in my fridge that comes with a spigot. Do I get a division win this year? That remains to be seen, but the most certainly is a bag of coffee with a spigot in your fridge. Furthermore, Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code BTP20. All right.
feel that? That joy. As Carlos Santana once said, that hose. The tray unleashes the hose and he waters the entire garden of fish fans. It's that went gin. That is the hose. It's just an unbelievable feeling. I it's one of those jams that I almost don't even have to like wish I could go back to the first time I heard it because every time I hear it, it does the exact same thing to me. And I hope that that never changes. So as we announced earlier, as you guys heard, uh, beyond the pond is going to be closing up shop. So to speak, we're still going to be doing our thing just under the umbrella of a new name, the undermine, podcast undermine, I guess is probably the best way to call it. And so we wanted to send ourselves out on kind of a big note here and give you all kind of lift the curtain a bit on where we both came from in terms of the music that made us. And so we're not really looking for like a specific theme here to go along with the went gin. We just wanted to talk about individually two albums that define who we are as people, as listeners, and have really guided us to where we are today. Um, and so in that spirit, we're just going to talk about the war on drugs and Yola Tango. Actually, we're not, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) we've dedicated plenty of time to those two wonderful bands. Um, we're each going to talk about two bands that, uh, we love here and, uh, two albums that we absolutely love. So I'm going to kick us off here with, um, an album that came to me as a surprise and, has just remained one of the best albums, one of the most impactful albums of my entire life and has really defined a lot of like what I look for in music. And that is the Kinks 1970 record, Lola and the Power Man versus The Money Go Round. The song I'm going to play off of this is the very somber ballad that you find midway through the record, This Time Tomorrow, a song that's similar to the Went Gin. Every time I hear it, it just like, builds that feeling up inside of me. So Lola vs. Power Man is the eighth studio album from the Kinks. It's a loose concept record about the music industry at large, contractual disputes, artistic failure and fleeting success, life on the road, fusion of business with artistic creativity, and the battle against age that any young pop star battles against. As a concept record, it diverts at times, so as one never feels like the story dominates the music too much. As a result, what it loses in terms of the cohesion that you would expect from a true concept record, it gains in terms of some of the most endearing songs Ray Davies has ever written. The album is best known for its lead single, Lola, which is one of the biggest songs of the Kinks' career. So in 1965, the Kinks were banned from playing in America, which prevented their popular development in the way that the Stones and Beatles experienced, and has forever kept them as something of an underground sensation within the genre. It was this experience, combined with their failed U.S. return in 1969, ultimately inspired Davies to write many of these songs about his maddening and confounding experience within the music industry. Sessions for this record went exceptionally long as Davies wanted to experiment sonically in ways that he hadn't on previous records. This was heard noticeably in the Martin National Steel guitar that Davies played, the title track, a rickety sound that would inspire a number of 70s Eric Kinks tunes. Now, I was ultimately past this record in September of 2007 while studying abroad and being overseas for the very first time in my life. 
It was an incredible four-month period in time where I saw the world and my life as an American through new eyes. This record accompanied me during much of the time there, and every time I hear it, it brings me right back to that period. While thematically, the record is about the experience of making one's way through the music industry, there's a larger story to be told here about the transition from youth to adulthood and the experience one has of confusion, frustration, disappointment, and small wins that accompanies this experience. This is exactly where my head was at during this period, and this was the record that spoke most clearly to me at the time. Other records that hit me during this time were Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders, Bob Dylan's New Morning, Broken Social Scenes, You Forgotten in People, Radiohead's In Rainbows, and Neil Young's Live at Massey Hall. So the question at hand here is, how did this record make me? Well, it ultimately gave me further insight into the music coming out of the 60s that hadn't really been passed down to me from my parents. Neither of them were really big Kinks fans. Thus, this initially brought in my understanding of the era and opened my eyes to so many other artists who paved the way towards indie rock. It's also a really self-conscious record. Somehow sounds cool while being really vulnerable and slightly nerdy and uncool. This was a perspective in music I really wasn't aware of at the time and has since become one of my favorite positions to listen and write from. Finally, as I spent four months in Europe and then ultimately returned to the States for my final semester at college, the unknowns of adulthood which would follow, this record served as something of a guiding light for me. It was there for me on so many bike rides home from pubs during the month I spent living alone in Antwerp, Belgium, and on my flights home to the U.S., where I listened to this record nearly on repeat. And then as I settled back in for a final semester of college, later as I moved to Alaska for the summer to figure out my next steps, and then as I solidified these while in Chicago, planning to move to Korea for the first time in early 2009. For a significant chunk of my life, This was there for me in a way that few records have ever been, and it is a record that without this, I don't think I'd have the perspective I have today in a lot of cases, and um, I absolutely love this record, so I'm going to encourage you all to check out, if you have not, Lola and the Power Man vs. The Money Go Round, one of the albums that made me. The song I'm going to play from it here is one of my favorite songs ever written this time Watch the clock. 
tonight, I'm going to talk about a band that is doesn't have much in common with the Kinks, and that's okay. I'm going to talk about one of my easily my favorite albums of all time, Desert Island Record. Faith No More is Angel Dust, and the song I'm going to play is Midlife Crisis. This album to me makes you think about the eighth grade. So Angel Dust is officially Faith No More's fourth studio album. I think it came out in the summer of 1992. It's actually only their second record with vocalist slash noise terrorist Mike Patton, though, and kind of really the first where Patton's making full-time contributions to the band, which can be seen in the nearly four-hour making of documentary on YouTube that isn't so much a documentary as much as it's the band fucking around the studio and Mike Patton rambling on about everything and nothing for minutes at a time. I'm a huge Faith No More fan. I've never come close to getting to that whole documentary. <laughs> but anyway, Angel Dust is kind of what I consider one of the first albums that I loved that I knew many of my peers would not. And I wore this as a badge of pride. I watched a ton of MTV as a kid. And this was back when they were considered mainstream enough that the video for Midlife Crisis could actually creep into the MTV Top 20 Video Countdown, and it did. I don't think I bought it right away when it came out. I think I got it as part of uh, the Columbia House, like 10 CDs for a $1 deal a few months down the line. Part of the reason for this is because the third to last song on the album is called Crack Hitler, which I still think is in bad taste, even if it's not really about Hitler. But uh, Jewish parents want to know why their kid has a record with that song title lying around. And I think I heard the whole record for the first time through a friend from my sleepaway camp, a guy named Ben Felton, who was visiting my uh, good friend Aaron, who also went to the same sleepaway camp. Ben lived in New York City. He was gracing us with his presence in Connecticut for one weekend. He also had uh, Allison change his dirt in addition to Angel Dust. And a year later, he made my friend a mixtape that had Fish's fee on it, marking the first time I ever heard Fish. Ben Felton, if you're out there, I salute you, bro. So, people think of Faith No More as kind of inventing rap metal, which uh, they kind of did in 1989 in the record The Real Thing. But Angel Dust featured no rapping whatsoever and really packed a progressive rock wallop. Kind of one of the reasons for this is the extensive use of uh, synthesizers the keyboard player roddy bottom is uh very much into using like synth sounds that kind of sound like the cavern of like lost souls but in addition to midlife crisis this is like big songs the opener land of sunshine it's got the heavy riffing of caffeine it has a song called rv which is just a piano ditty where mike Patton impersonates like a white trash guy sitting on the couch talking about his kids and like how terrible his life is it also has uh some songs that has some extreme process shrieking which mike Patton would uh use to great effect farther down the line in his career when he became a, a label owner for ipecac records also doing much crazy vocal work with uh, other bands, as well as uh, Yamatsuka Ai from The Boredoms. But really, I mean, Angel Dust, the songs are great. They're very heavy. They're very strange. And it all still holds up to this day. And that was kind of, like I said, one of the first records that got me thinking, you know, there's like certainly other things out there. Here's a record that... Um, 
at the time, I was still listening to lots of like Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, even some kind of really crappy AOR stuff like Mr. Big, Aerosmith. You know, like I hadn't totally broken free from the shackles of the mainstream what was on the radio when this album was kind of the gateway towards doing that. And um, Fifth No More put out a few more records. They kind of formally broke up, and I want to say 1997 with their last album, album of the year. They got back together in the mid-2010s uh, for some reunion dates, which I happened to see. They put out a record in, uh, I think, 2016 called Soul Invictus, which is pretty good as far as you know later comeback records go. Not bad at all. And uh, they were actually supposed to tour amphitheaters this summer with Korn of all bands, which seems kind of weird until you think that, like, actually Korn very much looked up to Faith No More, despite not being nearly as good as them. I uh, would have gotten the tickets to that, obviously dashed by the pandemic. But let's listen to a little bit of Midlife Crisis, because this was a song... That when it came out, I would put on the strobe light in my parents' basement and dance around and pretend I was in my very own music video. So, one of my favorite songs of all time, and uh, even more so than the Fifth No More song, Epic. It's uh, the one Fifth No More single that most hardcore fans like the most. So, let's hear uh, Midlife Crisis by Fifth No More off the Angel List. album recommendations we will keep doing this promise we're all about providing new album recommendations to all of you we had a couple really good ones here from recent records i've come out here at the end of 2020 and just a quick note we'll say this at the end of the episode but our next episode is our top albums of 2020 which um i'm really excited to talk about 
all the great music that came out in this fucking ridiculous year and try to piece together in my head how to award a record that came out in like February or March when I still thought we had like fish tour and I'd be seeing a bunch of concerts throughout the next couple of months. And so any of these records I was listening to like, Oh man, I really hope Stephen Malcolmus does a tour this summer because I'm absolutely fucking loving the Stephen Malcolmus record. All those records that like are from the first quarter of the year have just taken a totally different meaning as quarantine hit. And it's going to be really wild to hear how we compile some sort of a list here based off of that, because I've heard music totally differently since March 12th. But that said, want to focus on some really good records that have just come out that uh, may end up on that list for our next episode. I am going to talk about a record from Winston CW. Good guess. This is the third LP from uh, Winston Cook Wilson. Goes by Winston CW. Good guess is a true trio record. Along with Carmen Rothwheel on upright bass and Ryan Beckley on electric guitar. It's a spacious and drifting record. It sounds like this rain-soaked wander through New York City on a late spring evening to me, just kind of wandering with abandonment through neighborhoods. Hear that like pitter-patter of the rain kind of falling on the apartments and you're just kind of walking and just walking. I love it. I hear Talk Talk. I hear Scott Walker. I hear Jens Lechman across the record, all comprising of eight tracks within 41 minutes. There are no overdubs. There's limited edits from their session, which lasted two days in Brooklyn. And what the trio put to tape, you hear, and that sense of immediacy and attempt at nailing the moment in the moment offers windows into the honesty behind these tracks. The live feel gives the listener the sense everything could fall apart in an instant, which makes the listening experience all the more engaging. The sensation is heard clearest on the song Broken Drum, which weaves between decaying noise and intimate jazz songwriting. Elsewhere, swing time feels like a true opportunity for connection and collaboration between bandmates as the three work to reach each other through ideas weaving in and out of each other. Here, Ryan Beckley's guitar work and emphasis on singular notes and, co- and chords shines through, while Rothwheel's bass provides an eerie backdrop inter- interspersed with Cook Wilson's playing. I've been listening to this record a ton in the last few days, and it's hit really well in this secondary pause for a year that's essentially been on pause since March. Isolation is something that we can kind of welcome if we choose to, and Good Guess is a record written during a period of personal turmoil, which makes it feel like a proper companion to that need to keep oneself tied to their home for the next few months. However, towards the end of the record, there's a song like Birds, penultimate track on the album, which showcases the modest sensation of optimism that we will hopefully be feeling come spring 2021. I hear the birds flying back to me as sung through Cook Wilson's rickety baritone, which feels like a small moment worth celebrating. The record closes with the title track, an eight-minute composition which builds through the ennui of a breakup into a smattering of noise and atmospheric wall of sound that has failed to leave my brain since the first time I heard it. It's an absolutely incredible track. I cannot recommend it enough. Listen to that and then buy the record because it's such a fantastic introduction to the record, even though it closes out. Um, Of a quick note, uh, Winston Cook-Wilson is a co-host of the Late Era podcast here on the Osiris Media 
Osiris Podcast Network. Uh, we encourage you to sh- check that show out. It is a fantastic insight with Sam, uh, Sam Sadomsky and Andy Cush uh, into the late period records from some of your favorite artists, kind of the weird periods that they found, found themselves in. Um, Winston's a really great guy, and uh, we encourage you to check out uh, Good Guess here which just came out on December 4th. Fantastic record. Dave, what do you got? Yeah, I haven't heard that whole record yet, but I have heard the title track, and the title track is awesome, and it's one of the highest compliments I can pay when I say it is very evocative, uh, Spirit of Eden era talk talk. 100%. Yeah. Looking forward to checking that out. Um, Album I'm going to talk about is from a mid-30s Southern Hesher from Omaha, Nebraska, named David Nance. He has a new album out called Staunch Honey. So I know an album that we liked uh, two years ago back in 2018. It was um, pieced and slightly pulverized from the David Nance group. That was a very uh, crazy horse sounding full band loud effort. Kind of imagine like Rocky Herrickson fronting crazy horse in a way. But the new record... It's uh, much more laid back and stripped down. I think it's mostly, he recorded most of the instruments. He had some help from his buddies on, uh, I think, drums. But Staunch Honey is, uh, it's a chugling record through and through. It's just a bunch of, like, largely acoustic chugle rock anthems that'll sound really good on a porch, drinking a beer, out by a campfire. I mean, you really get the feeling it's the kind of rock record that could have been produced in some guy's basement in the Midwest, and it very well may have been. It's uh, on the vinyl, on the back it says, if it sounds like it was made on the cheap, that's because it was. But he's an excellent songwriter. I mean, despite kind of work with a pretty limited palette, there's several songs that are very fleshed out. Uh, the first two songs, in particular, Merchandise and My Love, The Dark and I, are quite anthemic. Um, last song on the record is uh, extremely kind of loud and anthemic in- instrumental that I've very much put into. I mean, sometimes it sounds like he's just fucking around, but it's to his credit that even when it sounds like that, he kind of definitely has like his ideas and kind of part of the charm of the record is that it feels like he's kind of working things out in the studio just on the fly, and you're kind of getting to watch it as it goes on. But if you live for the chugle and die for the chugle like I do, highly recommend this album, Staunch Honey by David Nance. Hopefully uh, he gets out there and gets to tour sooner than later because I'm looking forward to seeing him live. Hopefully uh, sometime next year we'll be able to do so. All right. So segment two, we wanted to do a carryover here from segment one. The albums that made us part two. So we didn't go with like a chronological approach. We both just wanted to like come with a couple records that have had a huge impact on our lives for a variety of reasons. I am going to talk about unquestionably my favorite performing artist, singer, songwriter, creator of music, basically like musical creator aside from fish. Uh, there's like a tier one, tier one, a in my brain, these two occupy it at kind of differing times. And that is, um, Mr. Bob Dylan, Mr. Robert Zimmerman, the album time out of mind. And I'm going to feature the track, not dark yet. 
So Dylan's 30th studio album and first since 1993's World Gone Wrong. Also his first original material since 1990's Under the Red Sky is the reset on the second phase of his career and one of the most important records I've ever heard. The album was produced by Daniel Lenoir, who also produced 1989's Oh Mercy, and was given far more freedom to explore sonic space around Dylan, adding far more atmosphere and space to the record than nearly any other record in his catalog. Famously, in April 1991, Dylan told interviewer Paul Zalo that, quote, there was a time when the songs would come three or four at a time, but those days are long gone. Once in a while, the odd song will come to me like a bulldog at the garden gate and demand to be written. But most of them are rejected out of my mind right away. You get caught up in wondering if anyone really needs to hear it. Maybe a person gets to the point where they have written enough songs. Let someone else write them. Well, fast forward five years, somewhere in the winter of 1996, inspiration hit Dylan over the head and these songs came to him. He'd stay up late furiously writing in a manner he simply hadn't for nearly a decade. And when he finished, he looked at Lanois and said, well, it's finished. Whatever you want to do with it, that's it. Coincidentally or not, in the 20 years since Time Out of Mind was released, Dylan has expressed displeasure with the recording and the uh, output of Time Out of Mind. Lyrically, however, record is defined in many ways by death and loss and impending darkness. Shortly after completing the record, Dylan came down with a near fatal case of histoplasmosis, which threw him into immense pain throughout June of 1997. As a result, when it came out and was met with strong praise, many looked to it as though it was the final grasp from rock's greatest writer. And at the time, in 1997, the idea of Bob Dylan putting out a great album was just there was no expectation for it. There was no, uh, nobody was like thinking that anything like this was going to come out. They thought his heyday was, well, Oh Mercy was great. Blood on the Tracks was great, but that was 20 years ago. Like the Bob Dylan of the mid sixties is long gone. It's crazy though, that where we sit now in 2020, Bob Dylan just put out another time out of mind style record in rough and rowdy ways. And nearly as much time has passed since time out of mind as had passed since, Dylan's heyday in the mid sixties when this record came out, it's kind of crazy. So how did this record make me? Well, growing up, Dylan was always a mythical creature for me. It's this mythological, like just man in the mountain that I just never was really going to understand within classic rock. My parents were never really into him aside from like the big stuff. You know, I remember they telling me that, uh, like when I was in high school, like, oh, you've got to listen to like, like a Rolling Stone. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. What well, this wasn't material. Like this wasn't music. I really grew up with kind of bypassed me throughout my childhood. Then I got to college. I met one of my best friends on my first day at university, the best man at my wedding, Mr. Chris T-Bone Timmons, who was a huge Dylan fan and an excellent songwriter in his own right. We spent hours during my freshman year of college, and later when we moved into each other, when we moved in with each other and got a house, uh, we spent hours just getting stoned and listening to Dylan. And somewhere in the middle of the first time I heard "Time Out of Mind," it just clicked. Might have been the Lenoir atmosphere that aligned with my devotion to the Unforgettable Fire, my favorite U two record. 
Maybe it was a desolation of not dark yet that roped me in as a deeply paranoid and somewhat spiritual 19-year-old. Whatever it was, this album clicked and Dylan suddenly clicked. Two things happened for me as a result of this record. Number one, Bob Dylan became my favorite songwriter and the beacon for every piece of writing I look for uh, when I look for brilliance. Number two, I realized the importance of late era records. Time Out of Mind isn't just an incredible record. It's an incredible statement on what's possible deep into an artist's career, far beyond the brilliance of youth, far beyond their first failures, following many moments of brilliance and failure along the way, when an artist at this point seems out of touch, but finds it in them to write another chapter in their career. Of note, I did a massive Dylan deep dive this last year. It's one of the defining musical moments of 2020 for me. Listen to every single Dylan record from Bob Dylan all the way through Rough and Rowdy Ways, including live records, including all the bootleg albums. I think it's like 93 records in total. This is my seventh favorite Dylan record. It's his best of his post-60s, post-blood on the track work. And every time I hear it, it feels like such a statement on age and death and life. And it ties me to some central grounding space that I desperately need. It's been there for me in so many years since I first heard it. And uh, will always be the record that made Dylan just click for me. And from there, everything suddenly made sense. And, you know, the same way I'm sure, you know, we both felt getting into fish and so many of our listeners have, or any artists that you love, you have that record that clicks and suddenly their entire work of art opens up to you and offers new perspectives, new ideas, uh, new memories to have and to hold kind of in your mind and just new insight into the human condition that you would never have had without that artist. Uh, this is that record that did it for me with Bob Dylan. So we're going to listen to, um, probably my favorite Bob Dylan song ever. And, uh, I would say probably a top five song I've ever heard in my entire life. Not dark yet off of 1997's time. Shadows are falling and I've been here all day. It's too hot to sleep and time is running away. Feel like my soul has turned into steam I've still got the scars at the sun in There's not even room enough to be anywhere It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. Behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. She wrote me a letter And she wrote it so kind She put down in writing What was in her mind I 
just don't see why I should even care It's not dark yet But it's getting there And I've been to London I love that record Time Out of Mind's incredible record Especially the way it opens with that E minor or like organ lick. And then Dylan just saying, I'm walking these streets that are dead. You're like, holy (laughs) shit. We are in for it. Yeah, I absolutely fucking love Time Out of Mind. It's. A monumental record, the record by which all late era fully fucking comebacks should be judged. So, I'm probably going to go listen to it after we finish recording this podcast. But I'm going to talk about a very different record, one of my favorite bands. I'm going to talk about the album Urban Hymns by The Verve, which came out in September of 1997. We're going to play the song Space and Time. Freshman year of college. That's when this came out. Urban Hymns was the second album I ever reviewed for uh, the Rutgers College Alt-Weekly newspaper, The Rutgers Review. And my mind was kind of blown at the time that record labels and publicists just willingly sent us free CDs and gave us concert tickets in the hopes that we would review them positively. I was young and naive and thought, wow. This is great. I mean, you just had to write about this album and get it for free? Okay. <laughs> so, a copy of Urban Hymns showed up at the offices of the Rutgers Review, and the music editor, a uh, guy named Clifford J. Corker, I think now he writes about the Yankees for Sports Illustrated and like other, uh, other sports sites, he just said to me, you want to write about this? I said, okay. And the stars aligned. I had already seen the video for Bittersweet Symphony. I thought that was cool. I was also kind of confused. I thought I had read that The Verve had broken up after their 1995 album, A Northern Soul. Turns out this was correct, as they had broken up, but they ended up kind of getting back together as quickly as they broke up, more or less, because uh, Richard Ashcroft and Nick McCabe are kind of temperamental like that. They can't live with each other, can't live without each other. So, Urban Hymns, it's an interesting record because... It kind of is tied into this urban legend with um, the spiritualized album, Ladies and Gentlemen, We're Floating in Space. Of course, because um, the front man for the verb, Richard Ashcroft, allegedly stole um, Jason Pierce's girlfriend, Kate Radley. And Urban Hymns is entirely about uh, Ashcroft and Radley being happy together, whereas Ladies and Gentlemen were floating in space by spiritualized is supposedly basically about how Jason Pierce is miserable and has to shoot up tons of heroin to dull the pain of losing his girlfriend to his best friend. <laughs> but even without that crazy backstory, Urban Hymns kind of combine a lot of the genres that I would go on to listen to in college and beyond it has uh, the verb early on with pure shoegazers. Urban Hymns has a lot of shoegaze, but it also has a much more string-laden balladry. It combines the shoegaze with the balladry, like in the song Space and Time, which is something I would just 
listen to at night in my bed and cry myself to sleep just because I was a really impressionable freshman in college. It has uh, some stuff almost like some baggy rock, like the Charlatans dancier stuff in the 1990s. And it's got the huge closer. Come on. It's the big, rollicking shoegaze anthem that I think when I wrote about it, I compared the riff to the Grateful Dead St. Stephen because my frame of reference is basically Fish and the Grateful Dead, and that's it at that point. But so Urban Hymns, in that sense, it was eye-opening. Although nowadays I kind of classify that record as post-Brit pop. It was almost an introduction to get me listening to more British bands. I would go backwards and listen to like Blur and Oasis and all these other British pop bands. It kind of even helped me in law school because all my good law school buddies ended up being huge Verve fans to the point that we saw them on a, a reunion tour in 2008, which was a pretty, pretty awesome show. So I guess this album kind of made me just in the sense that it kind of got my uh, music writing. I wouldn't call it a career. My music writing hobby really kickstarted. It kind of uh, opened me up to the possibilities of like British ballads, British rock, shoegaze, baggy, dance music. Everything kind of put together in uh, one awesome package. It made me go back and listen to the other Verve albums. And uh, the Verve are also... A classic example of uh, the British trope I talked about in the Britpop episode of the uh, immensely talented frontman and the immensely talented guitarist who need each other and are shite without each other. Richard Ashcroft is incredible when he's got Nick McCabe at his back, but the Richard Ashcroft solo albums out Nick McCabe are terrible. Richard Ashcroft solo albums are not good, but he was brilliant when he was with the Verve, so... I just have to chalk up for the fact that he needs his guitar as his right-hand man. But they couldn't get along, and uh, I think the Verve splintered permanently And I want to say, 2008. I think, like, on their last tour, they trashed their instruments and left the stage, and that was that. In any event, let us listen to Space and Time off of the Verve's Urban Hymns. This wasn't a single, but it's uh, probably my favorite Verve song, just a uh, classic yearning bow that means a lot to you when you're 18 years old and you feel that the world is against you and you're in your dorm room and you're crying and staring at the ceiling and wishing how you could just go to London and be as cool as this guy. So, do it.
All right. Thank you all deeply from the bottom of our hearts for hanging with us here in episode 111. The Went Gin from Limestone, Maine. The Great Went Festival on August 17th, 1997. So just going through quickly the songs that we featured here. We took this jam, which as we talked about at the top of the episode, it's a jam we've kind of tossed around about covering for the entirety of Beyond the Bond. And we figured it's so celebratory. It sounds so composed and just so brilliant in its entirety. We're going to feature it and we're going to talk about some of the albums that made us. So in segment one, I talked about the Kinks, Lola, and the Power Man versus the Money Go Round and played the song This Time Tomorrow. David talked about Faith No More's Angel Dust, played Midlife Crisis. Segment two, I talked about Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind, played the song Not Dark Yet, and Dave talked about The Verve, Urban Hymns, Space and Time, a record I also owned at that period, but I was slightly too young to really get it. And so uh, Dave has inspired me here to revisit with Newfound Ears, something that our Britpop episode did a lot for me in terms of 90s music. I heard a lot of singles from, but never really dove deep into. So just uh, my favorite line from that Space and Time song is when Richard Ashcroft goes, we have existence and it's all we share, which is some heavy shit when you're 18 years old. Anyway, you can always find us on social media or on Twitter at, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Spotify, Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist. That's never going away. Never going away. No. Tons and tons of songs we featured throughout 111 episodes. 62 hours. You can hours. find that. My goodness. Just press shuffle and have yourself a day of it. But always go on the Bandcamp and buy the shit out of this stuff. Spotify is good for sampling. Bandcamp is where it's at. Yep. Check out the other phenomenal podcasts of the Osiris Media family at OsirisPod.com. Leave us an iTunes review. We still love reading them. We always love reading them. We never get tired of reading them. So our publishing structure, uh, just to give you all a heads up here. So... um as we noted, uh, we'll be going dark here uh, before the launch of Undermine. Uh, so we have two more episodes coming out for you here in 2020. Our next episode is going to cover our top albums of 2020, uh, which should be quite interesting. Um, and then we're going to follow up with um, a uh, kind of send-off episode. We're going to talk about... Some of our favorite episodes along the way talk about uh, kind of the formation of Beyond the Pond, um, talk about some of the things that we've learned as we've re- compiled this show, go through some top five lists that we're going to come up with here that should be pretty fun. Um, it should be a good episode, a good kind of send off to this project that we started um, coming up on Facebook. Four years ago, I think we first connected about this idea in the bathroom at MSG on December 30th, got in Mm. contact in the spring of 2017, and we knew nothing about audio engineering, and we knew nothing about editing a podcast. We knew nothing about music licensing, (laughs) and yet we said, (laughs) screw it. 
we're gonna try this thing out and uh we're here it's been a ton of fun and we're gonna we're gonna celebrate that as as best as we can uh we'll go dark then in january and then undermine will come back in or will launch in february of 2021 um like we said at the top and as you heard probably yesterday in um the announcement episode will be tag teaming, joining forces with Tom Marshall of Under the Scales, uh, RJB, Matt Dwyer, John Hart, and um, Brad Tenbook of the Helping Friendly Pod. And we're going to take fish as uh, this huge project and try to explore as much of fish history as we can, combining so many great aspects of what all of, all, all of these podcasts have done, great interviews, great deep dives on tours, great insight from fans. Uh, nerdery, but also a real like attempt to communicate what fish has meant musically to larger music fans in the larger musical world. And Dave and I come into play in a lot in that case where we talk about the context of fish to larger, um, music history. And we'll be able to do a lot that we've done here at beyond the pond and that sort of standpoint. So look for that here in the, uh, um, early part of 2021, um, until then, we have three episodes that will be coming out here this year. So, Brian, would you say as far as Beyond the Pond goes, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there? Oh, man. Now you're, you're going to make me cry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shadows are falling, man, and I've been here all day. Mm. So, if you've been hanging with us for this long... Thanks for doing so. We appreciate it. We hope you uh, indulge us talking about records that made us, talking about the bathtub gin from the Great Went, and uh, all sorts of other wonderful things. And we're looking forward to our final two episodes, which are going to be a, a jamboree, a Viking funeral, if you will. We're <laughs> going to uh, be sent out on a flaming pyre of awesomeness. So come back for that. We'll join hands, sing Kumbaya, and go beyond the pond. Beyond the Pond podcast is part of Osiris Media and is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.